Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and for Easter we are praying the Regina Chaley. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Queen of heaven, rejoice. Alleluia. The Son whom you merited to bear. Alleluia. Has risen as he said. Alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary. Alleluia. For the Lord has truly risen. Alleluia. Let us pray. O God, who through the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, did vouchsafe to give joy to the world, grant, we beseech you, that through his mother, the Virgin Mary, we may obtain the joys of everlasting life through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop provides an update and some words of encouragement for the diocese as we continue to navigate the coronavirus pandemic. Then it's on to the feasts of two saints, St. Joseph the Worker and St. Catherine of Siena, followed by listener-submitted questions. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we are keeping our distance, but able to broadcast again. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome, Kyle. No sneezing or coughing, okay? That's right. That's right. Everybody's or healthy. Or into your arm, if you Yeah, you're right, yeah. right. Everybody in the diocese is healthy? Are we well, we've had a number thoughts? of people who've been infected with the okay. virus. It's important that we pray for them and their families. You know, some of the Sisters of the Holy Cross, you know, there was a little outbreak there and a Sacred Heart nursing home in a villa. So there have been a few little hot spots. And the numbers, of course, are higher in Allen County and St. Joseph County because of the population, but also other counties. There have been a number of cases like Elkhart County and Noble County. So um, we pray for everybody who's uh, affected by this, especially those who are sick and those who are, who are seriously ill. It's important that we continue to pray for them. How have you seen our Catholic churches and Catholic schools affected by this and, and adjusting as well? Well, you know, it depends on the parish. I, I'm really proud of our schools. I mean, digital learning, e-learning, and mm -hmm. other things. I mean, our, our Catholic school teachers have been amazing, how they've stepped up. I mean, it's like second to none, how they're continuing to educate our children. I've been amazed by it. Yeah. And, and that's been a lot of hard work for them mm -hmm. and for our principals. But I'm really proud of them. It shows it shows their commitment. And I have a mass coming up on Friday for all of our Catholic school students. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to that on May 1st. Was that planned ahead of time, or was that something you decided to do oh, I, I decided to do because of the situation yeah. we're in, because I haven't been able to do any school visits since right. the lockdown. So this was a good way to connect with all 43 school communities. Mm-hmm. And so e-learning is supposed to be on pause for that so that everybody can participate and they can stream that again on Facebook and YouTube, the same place where all of your masses have been streamed, I assume? That's right. I'll be celebrating it in the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, but it'll be live streamed. Anyone can join. And it's also the day when the, the consecration of our nation, the reconsecration to Mary will take place, led by Archbishop Gomez, who's the president of the 
USCCB and the Archbishop of Los Angeles. He's asked all the bishops of the country to join him in this reconsecration to Mary under Mm -hmm. the title of Mother of the Church. So I will actually do the consecration of our diocese or reconsecration to the Blessed Mother at the end of the live stream Mass on Friday. Okay. So that's another reason I invite people to tune in to the uh, Mass at 10 a.m. And the, uh, the reconsecration will be like right before the final blessing. And people can pray along. They can also go on to whatever social media to see Archbishop Gomez, which is later in the day. I can't remember the time. It might be at noon or it might be at three. I'm sorry I don't have that. We're also, bishops can do the reconsecration at that time along with Archbishop Gomez or another time of the day. And it just seems like a good time for me to do it with the diocese since I'm already going to be live streaming the Mass on Friday to just do it at the end of that Mass, and then all of our school children and youth will be able to participate. Well, and of course, anybody can watch that and should watch that. Archbishop Gomez will be at 3 o'clock Eastern time for people that want to catch that. But again, 10 o'clock Friday, May 1st, it'll be streaming on the Diocesan Facebook page and YouTube page. Also, Redeemer Radio is going to be streaming that too. Oh, so good. I didn't know that. Thank on you. On Redeemer Radio. You know, and also I want to, other students too, our Catholic students who attend public schools or are being homeschooled, they're also very much invited and welcome sure. to, to watch the Mass on Friday. Can you talk a little bit about a consecration to Mary in the first place, and then much less a re-consecration and what that means for us? Yeah, it's basically we entrust ourselves. In this case, we entrust our whole country to Mary. Another word for consecration is entrusting. So we entrust ourselves to her intercession and ask her to present us to her son. You know, it's a beautiful thing. It's kind of like you ask your mother for something your natural mother, so we can turn to Mary, who is our spiritual mother, to ask for her favor and her protection. Now, the reconsecration, of course, is being done in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we're asking for Our Lady's intercession for ourselves and all those who've been harmed or are in danger because of the pandemic. And we pray also asking her to intercede for an end to the pandemic. So kind of a, a holy family celebration. We're we're asking Mary for her intercession, but it's also Saint Joseph the Worker. Will that be part of your homily? Yeah, because I originally planned it around the feast of Saint Joseph the Worker. Because uh-huh. May first, I was going to mention Our Lady because it's the beginning of the month of May, uh-huh. the month of Mary. And I still am. I'm going to celebrate the Mass of St. Joseph the Worker. I don't think the Blessed Mother will mind. (laughs) (laughs) She's she's very generous. Right. But I'll talk about both, of course, Uh, because, you know, it is the Feast of Joseph the Worker. But because we're having the reconsecration to the Blessed Mother and also because it's May is Mary's month, I'll also be talking about about the Blessed Mother. I haven't prepared the homily yet, so how I'm going to bring it all in, I'm not quite sure. But, and of course, you know, the other challenge is, I was thinking this is an all schools mass, but I'm going to, so I'm going to have kindergarten children watching it, but also seniors in high school. So Uh I'll have to try to tailor a homily that somehow will be uh, relevant to everybody. Well, I think you can pull it off. Oh, thanks, Kyle. If you have any ideas, let me know.
Or if you want to write the homily for me, you can be my ghostwriter. You have little kids. You'd be able to do that. <laughs> I don't think that'd be a good idea. <clears throat> it'd, be, it'd probably have too much baby shark in it for my kids. Uh, so another thing that happened recently regarding the COVID-19 is a letter that came out and you were one of the authors of the letter. There's four bishops that co-signed it along with a whole host of different organizations, not just Catholic organizations, but there was a lot of different people that signed that. Can you talk a little bit about how this letter came about? Yeah, the the four bishops were four of us who are chairman of really the relevant committees of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So I signed it as the chair of the USCCB Committee on Doctrine, Archbishop Nauman, who's the chairman of the Committee on Pro-Life Activities. Naturally, we also had the signature of Archbishop Coakley, who's the chair of the Committee on Domestic Justice and Mm. Human Development, and also Bishop Dorfler of Marquette, chair of the subcommittee on healthcare issues. And that's a subcommittee, actually, of my committee, of the doctrine Doctrine, committee. As you noted, there were also several other people who are presidents or directors of various national organizations that are pro-life and and concerned about this issue. It has to do with the development of the COVID-19 vaccines. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we support the rapid development of a of a good vaccine, one that will be effective and safe and widely available to combat this virus. But, you know, ethics comes into this as well. The problem that we wanted to address was the fact that some of the researchers on a new vaccine, and as the vaccine is being developed, have they're producing these vaccines using old cell lines that were created from the cells of aborted babies, mm-hmm. which is ethically problematic. Um, there are other cell lines that don't involve cells from abortions, and they're available, and they are being used as well. Uh, so our point is that Americans should have access to a vaccine that is produced ethically. Mm-hmm. So we, we really... In our letter, and maybe some people have read it, I think we had an article about it in Today's Catholic, we make it clear. Our letter, by the way, is addressed to the head or commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. We're just encouraging them to ensure that cell lines are utilized that are not connected to abortion. Obviously, you know, the and, and the Vatican, you know, years ago, this was an issue regarding other vaccines and the congregation for the doctrine of the faith made it clear the importance of removing ourselves from this, I guess you could call it in research, from the unjust situation of material from an abortion. You know, obviously there's the scandal involved. And the thing is, there are ethical ways of doing this, so it's not necessary to use cell lines from aborted babies. So we're very much we're very strong in supporting research on a vaccine that does not have recourse to abortion-derived cell lines. You know, one organization that's working on this is the John Paul II Medical Research Institute which is using human adult uh, stem cell lines, which, of course, are not problematic at all. 
You know, there's just basically no need to use these ethically problematic cell lines to produce a COVID-19 vaccine. There are other cells available. Okay. And this, not only for producing this vaccine, but I imagine this applies to all vaccines, that this isn't necessary to use these and we should stop using them. And that's what you're encouraging as well. That's right. And if people want to know more about the teaching of the church in this, the document from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith is called Dignitas Personae. It came out in 2008. And I think that's that does analyze the whole morality of using cell lines or immorality of, of using cell lines derived from elective abortions when there are alternatives to such cell lines. All right. And people can find information about that letter and a copy of the letter as well at the USCCB's website, usccb.org. Also, it's been on social media, like you said, in today's Catholic. And a reminder, Friday, the all-school mass is at 10 a.m. That's Friday, May 1st for all of our Catholic schools. Anybody is welcome to tune into that. It'll be on Facebook and YouTube on the diocesan website. Also be broadcast on Redeemer Radio. And at 3 p.m. on Friday, Archbishop Gomez and his consecration to our Blessed Mother will be broadcasted as well on Redeemer Radio so people can check that out. You know, I want to say a little bit more about the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. You know, we have a lot of churches and other institutions in our diocese that are uh, dedicated to St. Joseph, have the title of St. Joseph. Mm -hmm. Um, We even have St. Joseph River and St. Joseph County. You know, the principal feast of St. Joseph is March 19th, and we celebrate Joseph as the husband of Mary and foster father of Jesus. And of course, as everyone knows, St. Joseph is the patron of the Catholic Church, the universal church. But then we have this optional memorial on May 1st of St. Joseph the Worker. And to be honest, maybe some listeners would be able to correct me, but I only know of one parish in the diocese that's dedicated to St. Joseph the Worker, and that's St. Joseph Parish in Fort Wayne. Uh I think the other, I don't know that the other parishes named for St. Joseph are under the, his title of worker. But this was is a re- relatively recent feast of Joseph because it was only established in 1955. Oh, interesting. And it was really interesting, the origin of this feast. St. Joseph was already declared patron of workers by Pope Benedict XV back in 1920. Mm-hmm. But there was no feast until... 1955, when Pope Pius XII established the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. And he did so as a response to what was happening on May 1st, May Day. It was a big deal to celebrate workers on May 1st, but it became very much associated with communists. Communist nations and movements in non-communist nations held their celebration of labor on May 1st. Mm. Obviously, didn't sit well with the church to be giving this kind of respect to communism. Mm -hmm. So they changed the way that we would celebrate May 1st, or the Catholics would celebrate it. Pius XII very smartly decided to to institute the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker on May 1st. And he did it. He was addressing the Catholic Association of Italian Workers. And that was a group that 
fought for respect for the rights of workers. And it wasn't a communist group. It was a Catholic association. They, they did not support the communist philosophy, but they did, according to Catholic teaching and Catholic social teaching, want to defend the rights of workers, but not by falling into the materialistic and atheistic ideology of communism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the communists were attracting people in the West also to, to join them and to become members of the Communist Party. So Pius kind of steered them in this other direction because St. Joseph was a carpenter, was a manual laborer, a worker. He seemed like the perfect patron for this. And, and it was a way for the church to support the legitimate aspirations of the working class to fair wages and just treatment, the dignity of workers. So I think it was really, really providential that uh, Pope Pius Twelfth did this. And I think this feast still has relevance today. The idea of St. Joseph as an example for us of work, you know, he was the one who used the work of his hands in the skill and trade of carpentry, participating in the creative work of God, sure. which is a beautiful, you know, Catholic understanding of work, of human labor, that it's a way for us to participate in God's creative activity and also the redemptive work of Jesus. Hmm. And work can be a an expression of love by which a worker is able to support the family, etc. So I think it's good that we celebrate it. I also think how significant it is of Joseph being a model for workers and also how he taught Jesus the same work, the carpentry trade mm -hmm. and the value of work. And not only that, Joseph was the father, the teacher who not only educated his son in carpentry, but also in the wisdom of, of the faith, mm -hmm. the Jewish faith, and how he helped Jesus to grow on a human level, of course. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the Son of God, but in his human nature, to grow in his understanding of, and appreciation of his unique relationship to God the Father. So he guided the young Jesus. And of course, that's another important thing, especially for fathers and that they also be examples in that way of, of guiding the young people and their education, not only in, in their work, but in, in the faith. Mm -hmm. Well, coming up, we'll talk about St. Catherine of Siena, a doctor of the church born during a plague, and have some listener submitted questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we talked about the upcoming feast day of St. Joseph the Worker. We didn't talk about today's feast, which is the feast of St. Catherine of Siena, who, I didn't really realize this in advance, but was born during the outbreak of a plague, so maybe a little appropriate to our, our current situation. That was in Siena, Italy, 1347. Also a doctor of the church. And that's about as much as I know about her. Oh, do you know how many brothers and sisters she had? No. 22. What? Yep. We have large families here in our diocese. I don't know of any, though, that have 23 children. She was the youngest. She was the 23rd child. 23rd child. Wow. Yeah, it was a difficult time in the history of the church for many reasons. The 14th century was a, a very troubled time. She's called Catherine of Siena because she was born in Siena, a wonderful town in Italy. If you ever go there, it has that medieval atmosphere. And at the age of 16, Catherine entered the third order of the Dominicans, the female branch that is third order. So they weren't cloistered, but she took the vow of virginity. She was just an adolescent when she did that. She dedicated herself to prayer and to penance and works of charity, especially for the benefit of the sick. She became, you know, known for her holiness. She really was a remarkable woman. I mean, and, and, and at her young age, she was really remarkable. You know, at first her, her parents weren't too happy about her choice of life. I think they wanted her to get married and all that. And, and so she disappointed them and she was protesting against her parents. She cut off her hair. So there's a lot of interesting stories. She did this so that she wouldn't attract a husband, I guess. Uh. But she was young when she entered the Dominican order, as I said, the third order. So I think she continued living at home for a time. But anyhow, she was a um, pretty impressive young woman intensely active in, in caring for others and in prayer. And then people of all walks of life would um, come to her for guidance. I mean, ordinary people, priests, religious, wealthy people, politicians. And one person who, who sought her was the Pope. Gregory the Eleventh. Now he was living at Avignon in France. That was the time when, the seventy years or so, where the popes lived in France, it was really very difficult that they weren't in Rome. That created a lot of problems, a lot of political influences and fights and all that. And it was Catherine of Siena, this young woman, who urged him to return to Rome, and he did. And she was very energetic in this. And I mean, it was pretty amazing that she had that kind of an influence. Uh -huh. She worked for the internal reform of the church where there was corruption or other things. She also was a worker for peace because there were a lot of battles at that time between different city-states. She suffered a lot. At one point, they, her orthodoxy was questioned and the gen they had a general chapter of the Dominicans, and they they summoned her to Florence, and they interrogated her, etc. They cleared her of any heresy or any wrongdoing. You know, she wasn't really educated. She only learned to read on her own, and then when she was an adult, she learned to write, and she wrote really one of the great masterpieces of spiritual literature called The Dialogue of Divine Providence, or 
most times it's just called the dialogue of St. Catherine of Siena. It's a beautiful thing if you haven't read it, Dialogue of Divine Providence. That's why in 1970, Pope Paul VI declared her a doctor of the church. Now, she was already considered a co-patroness of the city of Rome and the patron, one of the patronesses of, of Italy, but then she became you know, a doctor of the church. And then later, St. John Paul II declared her one of the co-patrons of Europe. Hmm. which is interesting. St. Benedict was already considered the patron saint of Europe, and John Paul added St. Cyril of Methodius and Catherine of Siena to be. So they have a number of patrons for some extra prayers, huh? the European continent, right? And it's interesting, she was a mystic. She would have these ecstasies during her prayer. And one of them that's kind of famous, a vision that she had, Our Lady presented her to Jesus, who gave her a a ring and said to her, I, your creator and savior, espouse you in the faith that you will keep ever pure until you celebrate your eternal nuptials with me in heaven. And she could see this ring. No one else could. It was visible to her. Hmm. So that was an interesting miracle. But it shows that her her whole spirituality was centered in Christ. Christ was like her spouse. So she had this intimate relationship with him and she loved him above everything. And she felt profoundly united with him. There's another episode in her prayer life, in her mystic mystic experience where there was what's called the exchange of hearts, where the Lord appeared to her holding in his hands, a human heart, And he opened her side and put the heart within her. And this is what he said. Dearest daughter, as I took your heart away from you the other day, now you see I'm giving you mine so that you can go on living with it forever. Hmm. It kind of, I think, teaches us about how we're called to conform our thoughts and feelings to those of the heart of Christ, to love God, to love our neighbor as Christ loves and to be transformed by him and to love like him and have this intimate relationship with him that's nourished by prayer, by the Eucharist. Catherine's amazing. She had a very strong personality, kind of exercised this moral authority. And for a young woman to do that during that time, that was pretty amazing that she was responsible for getting the Pope back to Rome. She also had influence on other leaders and politicians. She loved the Pope, by the way. She, she's the one who famously would call the Pope sweet Christ on earth. Hmm. So she had a great respect for the papacy, but she would counsel the Pope. She would tell him, you know, or encourage him to be faithful to his responsibilities. She was saying, you, you need to go back to Rome. You're the bishop of Rome. She just profoundly loved the church. One other thing in the dialogue that I think is really neat that she wrote was how she described Christ as a bridge. And it's kind of an unusual image that she would describe him as a bridge that was flung between heaven and earth. Hmm. And there were three great stairways that were constituted by the feet, the side, and the mouth of Jesus. And this was kind of um, how the soul passing or rising by these stairways really rise through the three stages of the way to holiness. One is the detachment from sin. If we want to grow in holiness, that's one very important thing to be detached from sin. Mm -hmm. 
And then the practice of the virtues and of love. So not just to be detached from sin, but also to practice virtue, to love. And then, of course, this loving union with God. And that is especially in prayer. So really a, a very profound spirituality that she has. Again, I would encourage any readers who would like to delve into the spirituality of St. Catherine of Siena, this third order Dominican, to read the dialogue that she wrote. Again, she's a doctor of the church. She's somewhat popular with our young girls who are preparing for confirmation. Mm. A lot of the confirmations I have, there'll be at least one or two Catherine of Siena's. Uh So I've never had a chance. I'd like to know why they choose her, but... I used to pray in Rome. Her body is in the church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, which is a Gothic church that's right next to the Pantheon. So if listeners are ever ever on a pilgrimage to Rome, I would encourage it. She's uh, under the, the, the main altar of the church. It's a beautiful church, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. But her head's not there. Her head is in Siena. Right. Her body's in Rome. I've seen her head, too. And prayed there in Siena, yeah. Why, why did they get separated? I don't remember. I guess there might have been fight between them. and I, I don't remember, Kyle. If you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll have some questions about the chrism mass, the oils used, the veil being torn in two at the time of Christ's death, and more. Here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for him to answer. And our first question is, one benefit of having to watch the Chrism Mass online this year was that I was able to see what you were doing at the altar more clearly. During Holy Week liturgies at the cathedral, I usually have to sit way in the back, sometimes behind a column. I was wondering about the oils that were in each container and what you added to them. Well, there are three oils. One is the oil of catechumens that is used to anoint someone before they're baptized. There's an anointing with the oil of catechumens on one of the Sundays prior to the Easter vigil. For infants, they are anointed on the, on the chest just a little bit before they're baptized. So the oil of catechumens I bless at the chrism mass. The other is the oil of the sick, which is used for the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. And then of course, most important, it's not just a blessing, but a consecration, the consecration of the sacred chrism. And during the chrism mass, there are vats of oil for the chrism, but that's the only one where as the, the listener asked, what is added to the oils? Mm-hmm. Nothing is added to the oil of the sick or the oil of catechumens. Okay. But the oil that's used to make chrism, I poured balsam in it, that beautiful, sweet-smelling balsam. And so that's what the listener saw when I was pouring balsam. It was into the chrism oil, okay. not into the oil of catechumens or the oil of the sick. And then I do this long prayer of 
consecration after I mix the balsam and the oil and then do the consecration and then it, it is the, then it becomes the sacred chrism, which of course is used at baptisms, it's used at confirmations, it's used at ordinations of priests and bishops, it's used for the dedication of altars. In churches? And churches. Okay. Very good. You added that, Kyle. Good. I, we've talked about this before. So oh, I, oh, we did. I, okay, I remember good. a little bit of it. Okay. All right. Another listener asked, why did the veil of the temple tear in two at the moment of Christ's death? Yeah. Immediately upon the death of Jesus, we read in Matthew's gospel, and I think in other gospels as well, that the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. The idea that it was torn from top to bottom shows that this was an action of God. The, the veil of the sanctuary was the veil that covered the doorway to the innermost room of the temple, which, as you know, was the Holy of Holies. That was the place that was considered the place of God's special presence, mm-hmm. okay? That's where the Ark of the Covenant had been kept, and it really was the inner room So it had the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. By the time of Jesus, by the way, the Ark of the Covenant was already gone, but they still had the Holy of Holies. We remember we talked about how the Ark, during the, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, the the Ark was was removed. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, only the high priest, by the time of Jesus, could enter the Holy of Holies, and he would do it once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's the feast of Jewish feast of Yom Kippur. And the people would pray for mercy from God. They would have a ritual. They would sacrifice a goat to atone for their sins. And then the blood was sprinkled as an act of purification. So that was an annual feast. This veil was torn in two. Why is that? It's interesting. It has perhaps a couple different meanings because with the death of Christ, that's when the veil was torn. Everyone has access to God, not just the high priest who goes in once a year. Access to God is no longer restricted to one single person or to one day of the year. That might also have been a foreshadowing of the destruction of the temple, which took place in the year 70. That's interesting. Hmm. But also that God's presence is no longer restricted to this special place. God is present through the enduring presence of the risen Jesus. I also think of, you know, on the Day of Atonement, they receive God's mercy. Well, now with the death of Christ, and it was only for the the Jewish people, the Israelites people. But now with the veil torn, the Father's mercy is poured out on not just the Jewish people, but upon all people. This sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was for all, and it fulfills all these other sacrifices. It's complete now because now Jesus is the high priest, okay? Jesus is the high priest. And the sacrifice he offers is himself. And he takes the sins of, of all people on, his, uh, on himself in this offering. So this tearing of the temple marks the completion of the sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice is complete. So now we have this outpouring of God's mercy, not just on Israel, but on all the people of the world. 
All right. A question from our Rekindle the Fire Men's Conference. Can you give us an update on the seminarian situation in our diocese? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I'm still in the process. There's a few new applicants, so I don't have a total number. This past year, we had, I think, 25 or 26. But I'm really looking forward to ordaining one of our seminarians to the priesthood. Okay. I don't have the date yet because sure. with the uh, the restriction on public gatherings, we, do, we I'm not sure if it's going to be June 6th or not. Right. But we have one man who's now a deacon, Stephen Felicia, who I'll be ordaining a priest, God willing, soon. And we have six men, six young men, that I'll be ordaining to the diaconate. So we're going to go from, you know, next year, I'm hoping to have seven that I'll be ordaining to the priesthood. But anyhow, that's that's it. And, you know, I again, I don't even know when I'm going to ordain these deacons. It was right. supposed to be May 23rd, but I know that's not going to be possible. So we'll probably have, I'll probably have to delay the ordination of these six new transitional deacons. Mm -hmm. Would you ever do the deacon ordination at the same time as the priesthood ordination? I'm or? thinking of doing that this year because there's only one being ordained to the priesthood. Okay. I've, I've, the only time I ever remember doing them together was when I had the ordination in Nigeria a couple of years oh, ago. Okay, sure. I ordained priests and deacons together. So uh -huh. I'm not used to doing that, but that's a real possibility for this year. And everything's and everything's kind of up in the air because of the coronavirus pandemic. Sure. So so these guys are really waiting patiently. Yeah. You know, and uh, <laughs> about when they're gonna be ordained. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have any questions, go to redeemerradio.com slash ask bishop. You can text us on the Holy Cross College text line. 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer a question about living wills here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman asking the questions that you've submitted. And we have another question that came from the Rekindle the Fire Men's Conference. Does the church have an official position regarding living wills? That's a very good question. I've gotten this question a number of times. Of course, in the composition of a living will, sometimes called an advanced directive, it's a written document about medical treatments that a person would desire or to be administered or withheld at a future time. It's an advanced directive. So when a person becomes incapacitated, the doctors uh, or the medical staff would know what their wishes are. It's really important that these documents be in accord with church teaching. And I would like to point out there are problems with many living will documents. So it's really important that Catholics be very careful about this. Living Wills were first started back in the late 60s by the Euthanasia Society of America, which is now, I think, has a different name, but the Hemlock Society or whatever, I think it keeps changing its name. Mm -hmm. But the important thing is that if one is going to have a living will, it needs to be consistent with Catholic teaching. And I'll talk about a few important things to be careful about, but even if you have one that's consistent with Catholic teaching, it's really important to understand that sometimes end-of-life situations can be complex and very nuanced. 
And there's no document that you can kind of be able to evaluate everything until that time comes. If someone has severe brain damage, that can affect people in different ways. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that if it's ordinary means to maintain life and health and proportionate, that they be provided and, and they're necessary. One has to be careful about putting something in a living will that could actually at that time of decision could be really problematic. I remember a story of a guy who had filled out his living will and he said that if he if he suffered a serious injury or serious sickness, he didn't want any tubes, he didn't want any medical assistance with breathing, nothing like that. He just wanted to be let go. Sure. Well, one day he had a heart attack and he was struggling to breathe. Mm -hmm. And of course the the ambulance took him to the hospital in the emergency room. They looked at his living will, and it said that he didn't want to do anything, anything to be done if something like this happened. And he heard them talking about this, and he yelled out, no, I don't care what I wrote. I want to live. <laughs> you know, I can't breathe. You know, yeah. give me a – help me. So, I mean, that's an example. Mm -hmm. You know, so you got to be really careful. I mean, he wasn't at the point – where he couldn't have been saved, you know, he could be right. saved and he could live if he was treated properly. So you have to really be careful. And really what's preferable to a living will is to have a healthcare proxy. Sometimes it's called a surrogate, mm -hmm. a healthcare proxy. This I recommend for everyone. This is someone who we know really cares about us and is faithful to, will be faithful to Catholic teaching. They would be a person who, who knows our wishes and has our real best interest in mind, not only our medical, but also our spiritual right. needs. So I think having a healthcare proxy is something everyone should have to prepare for these difficult end of life decisions. You can have a living will, try to make it as best you can as uh, reflective of of our Catholic teaching, but also I think more importantly is to have a healthcare proxy. I would like to mention something too about, you know, the important thing as Catholics, we believe that with the church that we're obliged to use ordinary and proportionate means, you know, in assessing treatments as either ordinary or extraordinary care. So there needs to be careful moral evaluation. A anyhow, there's there's that that whole thing. Of course, we believe that normally uh, nutrition and hydration should be considered ordinary care. So mm -hmm. it would be wrong to put in one's living will that one shouldn't be fed or that one shouldn't receive hydration. Usually, in standard living wills, they generally don't. They don't put that. They don't say that food and water is to be administered. That's, again, the Catholic Church views that as normal care. It's kind of like, okay, we should be provided with clothing. We should be provided with shelter. Mm -hmm. We should be kept warm. Well, we should be provided food and drink. Mm -hmm. That's normal care, even if it's by means of a feeding tube. So you have to really follow those principles of ordinary and extraordinary care. Water and food, even when it's provided by artificial means, according to Pope John Paul II, should be seen as a natural means of preserving life, not a medical act. So it's morally obligatory unless, 
unless it would be something that would cause more harm or wouldn't be working, so to speak. I think um, a living will needs to say no euthanasia, okay? No action or omission that would cause death. Sometimes, you know, people are thinking of, well, the purpose is to eliminate all suffering. But, you know, there's other means to alleviate suffering, and we have medications, et cetera, to relieve pain, and the church certainly supports that. But there's also a value in suffering, the redemptive value of suffering that the church also teaches. So I think this is really important, but but physician-assisted suicide, absolutely not. You know, that's been gaining acceptance in some states of the United States through ballot initiatives and legislative actions. We definitely need to oppose any any act of euthanasia, which is, again, an action or an omission and an intention to cause death. Also, we want to make sure that at that time we're spiritually cared for, that if I had a, you know, my health care proxy, I would want to make sure if I was incapacitated that my health care proxy would call a priest so mm-hmm. I would be able to receive anointing and receive viaticum if possible. So I think most important is to have a good health care proxy. And if one is going to have a living will, make sure it's in accord with Catholic teaching. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.